welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. The last, or we are now exploring just for a few weeks, the, the book of Haggai. And if you were here last week, or if not anyway, you'll remember that the scene is unfolding in 520 BC. We can pinpoint it that accurately. 520 BC, from the months of August through to December. And the passage that we are going to look at today takes place on October the 17th, 520 BC. The word of the Lord has been brought to Zerubbabel through the prophet Haggai. It's been brought to Zerubbabel, the son of the governor, and to Josiah, the son of the high priest, and to the people of Israel. But so far, God has told these ragtag group of people who are called Judah, who have just come back from exile, he is reminding them to not to forget to build the temple. Through, time and time again throughout this book, don't forget the, to build the temple. They have been in exile for 70 years. They have come back. They have been in Jerusalem for about 18, 19 years. And God is saying to them, we saw that in chapter 1, please, 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 Build my temple. Or what we should say today, or what we should read instead of the temple is, please, please, please let my kingdom come. Let my will be done in the life of my people as I have ordained in heaven. Please be about my purposes. He says to them, the reason that their life is struggling, the reason that their life as the people of God is unfulfilled, has a sense that everything is not as it should be, or isn't quite right is because my temple lies in ruin. It is because although you are my people and call on my name and say that I am your God, you are doing the primary thing. You are not doing the primary thing that I have called you to do. You are busy with everything else, but I have called you to build the temple and you're not doing it. It is lying dormant. And then we discovered at the end of chapter one that the, the response of the people was, to come back to God, was to respond to his challenge. And they said that we will say, yes, we will rebuild. We will do what you want us to do. And so we pick up the narrative in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Just want to read those verses. It says this. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltia, governor of Judah, and to Josiah, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares 
the Lord of hosts. That's the word from chapter 2 of Haggai. In order to see that in the context of what was happening nationally or in a broader sense, I just also want to read three, six verses from Ezra chapter 3. This is putting it right in context in the reality. This is taking it out of the immediate and putting it into the broader situation. It's, and it's Ezra 3 verses 1 to 6. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, son of Josedek, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltia, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God of Israel in order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was upon them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings from morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon, and at the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the month, of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. To paraphrase those six verses, the best way that I can do it is this. They weren't doing what they should have been doing, but were doing what they shouldn't have been doing. That's a paraphrase. That's not from the message. That's just a very simple paraphrase. It is very clear that this is an incredibly busy time for this group of people in Israel's history, especially in regards to their religious life. This passage says that they have, been, they have decided to restart two areas of ministry despite the fact that the temple had not been finished. Despite the fact that what God had told them to do, they started or recommenced two very religious and very pious things. They had restarted the festivals of their faith, which in Judaism is huge, and they had restarted the sacrifices. The timeline here now is that we're about a month after chapter one. Chapter one has gone God has challenged them through Haggai. They have responded. He has run towards them, as it were, and now a month has passed, and we find ourselves. They have taken about four weeks to get to where we are. And as they get to the stage, these four weeks, they have been clearing rubble every day. They had been working hard. They were tired. They weren't seeing this rubble disappear as quickly as they wanted to. And they were beginning to ask, what is going on? When is all this going to be done? How much hard work have we got to do? They are getting tired, and they needed to, remind, to be reminded that God was with them. Add to this the busyness of the festival season, and they are starting to get towards their wit's end. See, the season of festivals is incredibly demanding, and if we don't know what happens in all these seasons, we won't know how tired they were. Say, day one is the Feast of Trumpets. Day 10 is the Day of Atonement from day 15 to 22, which is one day after the word that was given to Haggai, is the Feast of Tabernacles. If I can put it like this without being disrespectful, they are feasted out. They are fed up with religion. Everywhere they look, religion is going on around them. There's trumpets, there's Day of Atonement, there's blood, there's dead animals, there's the smell, and now is the Feast of Tabernacles. Religion is absolutely killing them dead for six days straight. They had done this festival, they were exhausted, and they were tired. 
They were trying to rebuild the temple. They were moving rubble, and it was proving too much for them. Life is passing them by, and they are on a treadmill. In this case, it's a treadmill of festivals, a treadmill of religion, and not of life. And it is on this day that God speaks to them and reminds them of his purposes and his plans and his power and his provision for them. Ironically, here they are on the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering God's goodness to them, and here they are standing in front of a broken temple. Here they are penniless, whatever the cent equivalent of that is, with a temple that isn't built, that is causing them a lot of problems, and God has the temerity to say, we may think it's temerity to say, the silver and gold is mine. There's a lot going on here that's a little bit confusing to the people. So really, what is Haggai chapter 2 really about? What is it to say for us? You know, it's easy to, to dismiss these small minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. It was written years ago to a people in another time and place about a building that we really don't fully understand. And yet, you tell us, Chris, to read in, instead of temple, or kingdom of God, or the purposes of God. I could suggest it could mean a number of things to us. First of all, I could suggest that it means getting a right perspective. Firstly, I could say that chapters, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 is about perspective. As God says to this people, and as he says to us, take a good look around. You were once slaves for the children of Israel, both in Egypt and now more recently in Babylon. But now you are free to be my people, free to worship, free to work, free to pursue life when many others do not have this luxury. As the psalmist would say, you live in a good and pleasurable land, but we have lost perspective on what the main thing is. The main thing is no longer the main thing. I could say, moving on from perspective and in good alliteration, that verses 4 to 6 are about promise. I am with you. I won't forsake you. I will be with you until the end and then even more so. My promises which you have seen me fulfill and come through on time and time again are as secure in this time as they ever are. So keep on doing what I have asked you to do. Perspective and promise and thirdly power, verses 7 to 9. Those verses that are about God's power and his provision. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine and in this place I will do whatsoever I choose and above all I will grant you my peace. These would lend themselves, hopefully, to a good and helpful three-point sermon. But this morning, in the time that we have, I want to unpack these verses somewhat differently and in a different way. In verses 1 to 3, I believe God is challenging the children or the people of Israel. He is challenging them, firstly, through the leaders, and then to the people. We see that habit again. We mentioned it last time. God challenges leaders first, and then he goes on to the people. He challenges the leaders of our homes, of our connect groups, of our church, of our communities. All of us who have some leadership influence. He challenges us first to respond, and then he goes on to challenge the people. And he asks these people a really, really strange question, and we'll unpack it in a few moments. Who of you remembers this house in its former glory. Who of you remembers this house in its former glory? And then God asks them three questions that are deeply penetrating for the people of Judah, and I believe deeply penetrating for us today, simply because he calls them to go beyond nostalgia. 
They were wallowing in nostalgia. And it is an easy, easy trap to get into today for us to wallow in nostalgia. Nostalgia is extremely dangerous for all of us. For often we can be nostalgic for the wrong things. Nostalgia says, wasn't it lovely then? Wasn't God closer then? Perhaps God was even better then. But we did have better days. Didn't we have a better church then? Whenever this wonderful mystical day was? Only if we could go back. If only we could go back to those wonderful days when everything was so rosy and church was so wonderful. What a load of nonsense. I think the Brits, I think my own nation, are, are the worst when it comes to this. We always think that as a British, with the British Empire, that we had an incredible golden age and that we had some wonderful days. And we may have had a few good days, but they weren't as good as the Brits would like to think they were. And we made a lot of decisions, a lot of mistakes around government and policy. I have heard people in my own country of Wales talking about going back to the great days of the Welsh revival or 1904 or 1905 or then in the 30s, the, the lesser known revival of the 1930s under the incredible preaching and teaching of a guy called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This guy was the medical doctor to the king of the United Kingdom and yet God profoundly impacted his life and he gave up being a doctor and he went to be a preacher and throughout the 30s and, and subsequently decades he preached and historical secular historians say secular historians say that only one thing stopped Wales from voting communism in the 1930s when communism was starting to grow across the world was the preaching of this man and I have heard people say, wouldn't it be wonderful to go back to the days of the Welsh revival or that revival? But you know, we mustn't forget in those incredible days, and you know, I mean, nostalgia messes with our minds. The good old days messes with our minds. Back in the days of the Welsh revival, we had child labor. We sent children down the mines. We had no universal health care. We had no education. And prostitution was one of the biggest income earners in the country. And if we as Christians in our own life, and our own walk, allow ourselves to get caught up in nostalgia, which God is challenging these people through the prophet Haggai, it will only drag us down. You know, <coughs> this is a bit of a rant, so please forgive me. I'll come down here. I'll get some water. I won't overheat. <coughs> but I might need to calm down. <coughs> I know most of you know my passion for rugby. I have to confess that rugby is probably my second game. Cricket is my passion. And whenever I get the chance to go across the Seddon Park and we'll watch rugby go to Auckland, to, uh, watch uh, cricket go to Auckland as well. But a couple of years ago, and I'm being deliberately generic here because I don't want to give away the nation that I'm talking about. <coughs> I think it was Ben and Megan and I and a couple of others, we'd gone and we were sitting on the grassy knoll it's a bit like, sounds a bit like J.F. Kennedy, doesn't it? But we were sitting on the grassy knoll, and it was a good day. And there were two teams playing. And there was one team that was not the Black Caps. Let's put it like this. And I think it must have been God in his goodness or his incredible sense of humor. I and the kids were sitting, and we seemed to be surrounded by pockets of fans from this other country. Says he, trying to be very careful. If you want to know who it is, if you make a check out of $1,000 to my favorite charity, I will tell you. <coughs> but they seemed to be surrounded, and these groups were talking, and all they talked about was how good it was in the old country. 
Oh, remember, we used to be able to do this, and we used to be able to do that, and the, the weather was warmer, and the barbecues were better, and the people were sweeter, and everything was lovely. And I'm thinking, I've been to your country. Are you deluded? <laughs> and I just got, I have to confess, and it's not a very good confession, so Don's not here, so I got really, really cross. And I thought, nostalgia has riddled and addled your mind. If it's so wonderful, then go home. <laughs> For goodness sake, go, go home. And it robbed them of the peace and the delight of living in this country. And it was just a grown, miserable fest. The team lost, <laughs> which did compensate. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> We can hanker for days that have gone by that weren't as good as we thought they were. What God does here through the prophet Haggai is really, interest, really interesting. And if we dig deeper, it gets even more challenging. There has been, they have been in exile for 70 years. They have been back for about 20 years. And he says, remember the former things. So let's imagine a baby was born just before they went into exile just before they went, and now they have come back. This baby, if you take 70, and they take another 20, this baby, or this grown-up now, is at least 90 years of age. And God asks the question, who amongst you remembers the house in its former glory? The answer is, no one at all. Not one single person. And if there were anyone there that could remember it, they probably couldn't remember it because of their age. What he is asking about is not about the simple remembrance of the temple. He is asking something far more poignant. Do you know what I think is going on here? As good people of the tribe of Judah, whilst in exile and since they were back, they would have heard so much about the temple. You know, this thing that we're supposed to be rebuilding. Do you remember when the temple was in existence? It was a wonderful day. Remember those things we used to do? We used to go and we would talk with our friends and we'd eat together and we would make the sacrifices and we'd go up on the high holidays and high praise days. And they would have had it described to them in, the, in its majesty and in its former glory. They virtually would have known what it was like, but none of them did. I don't mean to be confrontational at this point, but I do want to throw out a challenge. We need to be so careful that we do not live on other people's stories of revival or our own stories from the past. They will kill us quicker than anything else. Stories of revival or our own stories from the past. Rather than truly seek God, for our own generation and for our own faith community. Now, we can learn the stories of God, what God does when he moves. When it's important that we know what he did and how he moved. But it's far more important that we experience it today in our generation than talk about what happened in the past. Here God is saying to the people, do you remember what his temple was like? Do you remember what it stood for? Who remembers the glory days? And the answer is nobody. It's so far in the past for them, they don't really know what it's about. They were challenged to look back in order to look forward. Not to live in or hope for something that was, 
but to seek him afresh for something that is new. Not negating what has happened in the past, but it is in the past. See, the message of Haggai, if it's anything, is not about looking back, but looking to what God wants to do in our lives going forward. What he wants to do in in our community, what he wants to do in our town, in, in our area. It's about looking to what God has said he wants to do in this place for his glory. This may sound a bit simplistic, but hey, Paul tells us in Ephesians that he can do far more than what we can imagine or hope for. My prayer for my life is, Lord, give me a bigger imagination. Help me to dream dreams for what you want to do. Then Haggai asks three questions. The three questions. Who of you remembers the temple in its former glory? What does it look like to you now? Does it look like nothing in your eyes? These three questions asked by God through the prophet help his people to look back with fondness, with faith, and with hope, but not look back with nostalgia and just long for those days. And as long as they look back, as they look back, they are quickly urged to look around and they are quickly urged to look to the future because in about 520 years, their future would be fulfilled through one of their own and his name is Jesus Christ. What he promised them would be fulfilled. 520 years later, a man would be born of a virgin, a babe would be born of a virgin, he would come and he would die and he would save the nation. They could look back and and abort the baby as it were, but they could look forward to the incredible hope that God had. What was their perspective on it? If you read... Kings, 1 Kings 6, chapter 6 through to 8, you have an incredible insight into what is also going on in the mind of these people because these people know their history. They know their Bible or the Old Testament. In those chapters of 6 to 8 of 1 Kings, you read Solomon's prayer as he dedicated the temple. And and in an amazing verse at the very end, at the end of chapter 6 it is, I believe, it says that Solomon... Since spent seven years building the temple of the Lord. Wow, wonderful, marvelous, amazing. Thank you, Jesus. But then you read the very next verse, which happens to fall in the very next chapter, 1 Kings 7, verse 1. And it's a very unfortunate chapter placement. Having, having read that it, once, it said that Solomon built took seven years to build the temple. The next verse says, he spent 13 years building his own palace. Perspective. What was important to him? Did a great job. Built a great temple. But seven years, nearly double the time building his own palace. Perhaps even the great Solomon was more focused on what he needed and what he desired than what God wanted. <clears throat> Just looking at this historical placement again. You see, 1 Kings, 8 verses, uh, 1 Kings 8 tells us that on the seventh month, during the Feast of Tabernacles, it says that Solomon dedicated the temple. And this is not chance. This is not just irony. This is absolutely the word of the Lord. Dedicated in the seventh month. Here we have Haggai saying to them, in the seventh month, during the same feast, Years and years later, remember that the best is come. This is not a coincidence. They get it immediately. They are hankering for the past. They are hankering for days gone by. They remember everything that happened. And yet in the midst of this rubble and chaos, Haggai is saying, 
don't go back there. Look forward because the best is yet to come. And their response would be, get out of mate. So how do we remember the greatest of what was and look forward to what might be when the evidence of what around us is far from courage and encouraging? And the turning point into this whole situation, as in every situation, the thing that starts to turn this thing around for the children of Israel is when the voice of the Lord comes and says and speaks to them. He says, don't look through human eyes, look through eyes of faith. It is rubble, it is unfinished, it doesn't look good, but I am God, and I am telling you what is yet to come will be greater. Everything humanly was saying the opposite, but God spoke. How amazing it must be to stand in the midst of rubble and chaos and things not yet complete, and have your knuckles red and your hands sore from trying to do the work and getting into the reality of the situation and saying, this is too big for me, But to hear the Lord come in and say, not to pray harder, not to fast more, not to do this or not to do that. He says, trust my promises. So often we, when we find that we're going through a difficult time, our default is to pray more, is to read the word of God more, or just work more. God doesn't say that. He says, believe my promises. Many of us here today, I believe, might need to hear the same word of Haggai spoke to the children of Israel and to be, to be reminded that the promise he gave and spoke to you and spoke to you over you and to your families and to your loved ones and to your children and to your parents and over your husbands and over your wives. And although they now look lost and worthless and like a pile of rubble, and metaphorically today our hands and knuckles are sore and red with praying and crying out to him and doing our best, he says to us on this day in the 21st century, I have not forgot my promise to you and your families, and if I have promised to rebuild your situation, then it will be done. And he says, the best is yet to come, not because of your work, not because of your diligence, but because I have spoken. You know, it's the same way about revival. I long for it. But I have to confess that I'm somewhat fed up about talking about what God did when and where, and it was always somewhere else. I want to see it. I want to enjoy it. I want to live in it. And I want to experience God breaking into an ordinary congregation like this and doing incredible things. And I think it is possible for the whole point of Haggai is God saying to them that this is not the end. And he challenges them that the best is yet to come. You know, confession time. I love church. I love Gateway. You know, it's, um, it's where God has placed us and we, we see this is where we're going to stay. And I love it. But there's got to be more than this, hasn't there? There's got to be more than this. And, you know, and, I, and I love what we do here. But there's got to be more than 90 minutes on a Sunday. There's got to be more than simply contained what's in, contained in a small group situation or with our Christian friends. Surely there has got to be more. And friends, I believe there is more if we will believe his promises and seek his face. You know, verse 4 says this, Yet now be strong. The strength to keep going comes when you hear the voice of the Lord to us as individuals, and we hear him say specifically to us, be strong, for I am with you. 
The words to other people will not sustain you, but if you seek his face and he speaks those words to you, he will sustain you. Be strong. You know what I love about this? This is one of my favorite books. You know, he says, be strong and keep on working. Be strong and keep on doing what you're doing. Don't stop. Don't just give up. Just don't wait for some supernatural apparition. Keep on working. Keep on working and be faithful in all the things he has called us to. The great insight, the key to this promise is when we truly absorb that God is with us and on our side and it's not just simply there or on a book, but it's in our heart. You know, the one word that I love in verse 5, it says, my spirit remains with you. This one word is both powerful and significant in the, in the original Hebrew. Where was God's spirit? Where was God's spirit when they were defeated and taken into exile? Where was his spirit when they were in Babylon? And the answer is, he never ever left them. Where were they when they song, sang songs like, how can we sing a, a song in a strange land? He was with them. They didn't feel him, but he was there. He went into exile with them. When they returned, he went with them. He came back with them. When they had forgotten to build for 18 years, he was with them. You know, as a follower of Jesus, everywhere you go, he goes with you. What has been the darkest moment of our life? I can tell you a couple of dark moments of my life, and he was there with us. The moment you thought, I can't cope, he went with you. You know, the amazing thing about God is that in 2,000 years of church meetings, he hasn't missed one. Every church meeting, every connect group or life group or home group or cell group, every horrible conversation, and he was there. This is the very theological foundation on which we are building. It is not that God is up there, but that God is with us and he will never leave us, and we have to choose to believe it. This is the promise that makes the difference, that turns everything around. I don't feel you, God. I don't feel warm and fuzzy. But he says, that is neither here or there because I am with you. I don't sense you at the moment. Doesn't matter. Will we build our life on the promise that he is with us and will never leave us? Or will we walk away into our own imagination? When we go into the cancer ward, is he there with us? Yes. When we walk into the schoolroom, Yes. When we walk into the biggest mistake of our life, is he there? Yes. It doesn't mean that he approves of it or is happy with it, but he is there. When we walk into the lawyer's office, when our marriage is being dissolved, is he there? And the answer is yes. Is he in that difficult conversation with your partner? Yes. Is he there in the midst of your arguments with your teenagers? He will never leave us. <laughs> we have so much theology today on being honoring to God and being remaining faithful to him. And whilst this is important and crucial to our understanding, it is also important that he will remain faithful to us. He is a covenant-keeping God, as Haggai tells us, who calls us into a relationship and will never leave us. You know, I am not safe and secure today. You are not safe and secure today because I trust Jesus. I am safe and you are safe because he has called me. He will keep me. He will hold me. And when the storm hits, he still holds me. He cannot let us go, let alone will not. He cannot let us go. So let us remind ourselves as we start to draw this to a close. That everything that we need is in him. 
you know, the implications. Verses 6 to 9 says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the nations. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. And in this place I will grant my peace. And the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. Good stuff. And it gets us excited when we read all that stuff. You know, what's yet to come is better. He's got all the silver and his gold. You know, in this passage, God says, I have everything you need. But let's not misunderstand what he is saying here. God says to bring about what I desire, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth to bring about my purposes. Are you ready for it? I think Gateway's gone through a time of shaking. My prayer is that we're coming towards the end, but I don't know, but that God has shaken us for three years. And he says, I'm going to shake. When God shakes us one thing, something will happen. To be shaken and gripped by God is an unpredictable, uncertain, but an exciting place to be. But it is a predicated by shaking. We have to go through it. Then he says, the silver and gold is mine. And this really excites us as well. All the needs are met because all is met in Jesus, isn't it? You know, except what they understood, what the people, this ragtag group of people were hearing, wasn't exactly what we were hearing. What they were hearing is this. All the wealth on earth is mine, and you are merely stewards of it. God can miraculously provide any situation, but more often than not, he doesn't. Everything needed for his kingdom purposes, we have. And here is the challenge. When we read that the silver is mined and the gold is mine, what the people are listening to is Haggai saying, it's not yours. What you have got today is not for your pleasure in that sense. Yes, it is for your pleasure, but you are called to be stewards of what God has got. And we mustn't forget that all that we have, all that we do, however we live, we are called to be stewards of everything that he has given us. Our health and strength, we are called to be stewards of. Our ability, our time, our energy, our ability to live in wonderful homes, but we are called to be stewards of time that we spend in those situations. He can miraculously do whatever he wants, but more often than not, he does it through us. Musicians, please come and join me. You know, really, as I wrap this up, as we come and we come and do communion, this shaking, the thing to do with money, it's nothing to do with the finance or anything to do with money at all. It's about an attitude of spirit that says, God's work is always met by God's provision and mainly through ordinary people like this. I wonder sometimes what the greater glory will be. I so want to be able to sit with my kids and my grandkids and talk about the incredible days of revival. And do I believe in an experienced glory of the Lord when he comes in the power of the Holy Spirit and we bask in his glory and we just sit here lost in wonder, love and worship? Absolutely. I absolutely believe that with all my heart. Do I, do I believe that we sometimes have those occasions when we come just to meet and we don't sing and we don't worship, but we just enjoy his presence? Absolutely. To sit in his presence and just enjoy who he is. Please, Lord, bring it. However, we need to notice that this situation, whenever that happens, is not for self-interest or personal satisfaction or personal prestige, but always for mission and transformation of other people. I close with this. I do believe that it's 
my desire for my heart, my desire for us, is that we will discover something of the majesty of the glory of the Lord that Haggai challenges the people here about. And no, does this mean that he wants us to be a community of people hungry for himself? Yes, he does. Does he want us to be a community who pursue and long for him? Absolutely. Does he want us to be people who have our priorities right and we seek his face? Absolutely. Does he want us to end up really weird and strange? Absolutely not. But it does mean that we have to be open to him, give him space, give him room, give him time to speak to us and allow his kingdom to come. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.